You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, Side by Side is turning 20 today, and I thought it would be appropriate to raise the question, what does the good news of Jesus say to families with children who are struggling with serious illness? When we raise that question, we're raising a question about passion. Passion. We like to ask the question, what are you passionate about? You know what the word means, passion? Well, you know, to, to us it means feeling, and it, and it does mean feeling. What do, you, what, do you, what do you have feelings about, we're asking. But the biblical word passion, in addition to mean feeling, it also means suffering. So when we ask, what are we passionate about? We're also asking, what are we willing to suffer over? About what are our feelings so strong that we would suffer? Jesus is raising these questions for his disciples as he starts to turn the corner from his ministry in Galilee to his ministry in Jerusalem. As he's, so to speak, on the way, what Mark calls it, he's on the way the cross. He wants us to understand and to experience passion. So let's eavesdrop on the conversation. Please open up your Bible to page 820 if you're grabbing the Pew Bible, the black book. Uh, Otherwise, open up your own Bible, please, to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read aloud together. Mark 8, verse 27. When I'm done reading, when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen closely, you're reading his holy word. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. By turning and looking at the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. 
What does the good news of Jesus have to say to families of children suffering with serious illness? Or what does the good news of Jesus have to say to you when you suffer? When I was a uh, early in my ministry, uh, the Presbyterian Church asked me to do a, an internship. Uh, it's called Clinical Pastoral Education, and I did mine at Mass General Hospital in Boston. And the first thing they asked us to consider was, what's been your experience of suffering? And the reason for that is they did not want to unleash a bunch of new ministers on suffering people without them being aware of their own experience of suffering. And so I think Jesus here, as he says these words to his disciples, he began to teach them that the Son of Man would undergo great suffering, is asking them to consider their own experience of passion. And there are two very different messages in this conversation around suffering. Uh, and they come from Peter on the one hand and Jesus on the other hand. And these messages are so different that Mark uses really strong language to describe the conversation. He says, Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus rebukes Peter. And I'm thinking, this is just getting good, right? This is a real disagreement. So I want to reflect with you a little bit this morning on the difference between these two messages in the face of suffering. And the first comes from Peter, as I say. Peter confronts suffering with words of advice. Advice. Here, Jesus is contemplating his imminent death. The Son of Man, that's him, must undergo great suffering, be rejected, be killed. He's almost there in his head. It's this what we call anticipatory grief. It's close. This is the end of his life. He's about to die. Jesus is suffering already as he faces the cross. And how does Peter respond? The text says, he rebuked Jesus. Now, I don't think that Peter said to Jesus, Jesus, I rebuke you. I don't think it was quite so simple as that. You know, I think what Peter probably did is he, he, pro he probably tried to talk Jesus down just a little bit from the pain that Jesus was, was feeling, you know. Uh, he might have said, hey, hey, Jesus, let me give you a little advice. Do you ever say this to Jesus? You know, not to tell you how to do your job, but I, I just have a few things a few pointers that might be useful to you, right? First of all, Jesus, keep it positive, okay? You're starting to freak out the guys here. Just, can we, okay, okay? Second thing, uh, remember your theology, Jesus. I just had a brilliant insight. You're the Messiah. Have we forgotten that already, okay? It means you're really, you and God are really tight, and so uh, can't be suffering for you, the Messiah, um, because God in suffering, God is all-powerful, God is all-loving, can't be suffering in the world. That would create a big problem for people for generations to come. So remember your theology. And then third, um, I, I, I want you to you know, keep your game. You've been really good about approaching people who are suffering and relieving them of suffering. That's what we do here. And uh, let's keep doing that. And me and the boys, we're going to get you through this whole cross business, whatever it is. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. Okay? So he's got like really helpful advice uh, for Jesus. Now, the thing is, the man who wrote this, we think, was a man named John Mark, and he writes it in Rome when Peter tells him the events. And so Peter, looking back on it, while he may not have said, I rebuke you, Jesus, would look at those words of advice, and he would say it's functionally the equivalent of looking at Jesus and saying, I rebuke you. 
careful with words of advice to people who are suffering. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we say any of the awkward things that we tend to say to people who are suffering? Kate Bowler is a a lovely young woman who's just right now releasing a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. She's 35 years old. She's just been diagnosed with cancer terminal. She's a young mom. She's a professor at Duke. Great career ahead of her. Now it's coming to an end. And as the people grapple with her pain, the people around her, its title is suggestive of the kinds of silly things that people say. Everything happens for a reason. She says little things that people say sometimes feel worse than the cancer itself. She divides these people into three different groups. She calls them the minimizers, the teachers, and the solution people. The minimizers want you to see that things aren't really as bad as they seem. Come on. And uh, we, when we're minimizing, we tend to say things like, well, at least blank, right? Well, at least you have another child, right? Blank. That's a horrible thing to say. At least, or things like, everything works out. Teachers, they want you to find meaning or learn some lesson. Come on, you must be missing something. So we say things like, you know, God needed an angel. Come on. Uh, or another one, uh, in my long life, I've learned that. And here's the insight. The teachers. Third group of people that Kate Bowler identifies, she calls the solutions people. They want you to try something else. Have you tried herbal yet? You know, acupuncture. We say things like, uh, keep smiling, your attitude determines your your destiny. Or, and I've heard this a lot, um, I've done some research and, and so you haven't like found the right way to get yourself through this. Why do we say things like this? Why Peter? Why does he come forward in this way? I think um, at the bottom, it's because we're uncomfortable with suffering. I think Peter's just feeling really uncomfortable as soon as Jesus changes the subject to passion. And what we do when we're uncomfortable with our own suffering and our fear of suffering is we grasp for control. We want control somehow, somewhere. We want to believe even against the evidence that we live in a rational, ordered universe, that bad stuff doesn't just happen just because, that there must be a reason, there must be something that you've done wrong or something that you can do, something that got you into the situation or something that will get you out of this situation, and so we come to advice. This is exactly what we see in another situation with the disciples when they come upon a man who's blind, and they say, hey, Jesus, so tell us, who did something wrong? Was it him or his parents? <laughs> Jesus is like, you don't, you, you don't get it. Or Job's counselors, their advisors, and they come up to Job one at a time, and they go, hey, this must be why you're in this situation, or this must be what you can do to get out of this situation. It's all advice, and the problem with advice is it throws us back on ourselves. It's what you have to do. Do this, try that, avoid this, learn this. It's about control. Kate Bowler writes, control is a drug, and we are all hooked. A story in the New Yorker cartoon several years ago, and it was a funeral. There's a casket behind a woman who was at a lectern, and she was looking out over her family and friends. She said, Mom would not want us to feel sad today. She'd want us to feel guilty, right? <laughs> Somehow, there's got a sense that this is my fault, right? It's all going to come back to me. What did I do? Jesus has a different way. 
Peter is confronting suffering with words of advice. Jesus is confronting suffering with words of good news. This is the gospel. That's what gospel means, good news. See if you can hear what Peter seems to miss in verse 31 as Jesus, as Mark tells us what Jesus is saying. Then he began to teach. Uh, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, and he'll be rejected, and he'll be killed. And then, after three days, will rise again. There it is. This is what Jesus calls the gospel or the good news down in verse 35. He will rise again. Jesus is pointing his disciples to hope in the midst of suffering, hope right there in the presence of passion. And it's symbolized by a cross. Our cross is in the center of the stained glass window. That image is a symbol of good news and suffering, of hope and suffering. And there are three little things i just like to reflect with you about the meaning of the cross um, uh, briefly from this text. The first, and these are three things that good news brings us in the midst of our suffering. The first one is profit. In the cross, there's a promise of restoration. See, three days. If you follow the sentence all the way to the, the end, three days and he will rise again. Resurrection offers us profit. And Jesus uses economic language here. It's, it's really interesting. What will it profit a man, verse 36, to gain the world and forfeit their life? What's this profit and gain business? Profit and, and loss business. You see, anytime you suffer, it's a loss. You've lost something some ability that you had, some relationship that you had, some status that you had. This world is not the same as it used to be, and you're, you're feeling lost. And, but, but with Jesus, he changes the equation. The value equation shifts. It's like he puts a negative sign at the front of the whole thing. Because with Jesus, he's saying, and the cross, loss becomes gain, and gain becomes loss. And I don't quite know how to explain this to you, but I know it's stunning. When I was in college, this question that Jesus asked just stopped me dead in my tracks. What would it profit a man to gain the world but lose himself? I was very ambitious as a student. And I, and I thought this was, the, this was the whole point of life, was to gain the world, or as much of it as you possibly could. And Jesus goes, well, what if you did, and you lost yourself in the process, would that be a gain at all? Jesus is offering resurrection, which isn't just compensation for loss. Well, you've lost something, and I'm going to give you something else, as though heaven were this sort of experience of bliss that's better and somehow erases all the ways in which we experience pain in life. Resurrection is actually restoration. You get back what you lost. What you lose is your body, and you're going to get your body back. What we're losing is the creation as God intended it to be, and we're going to get it back with glory someday. So I'm promising you the world. I'm promising more than you could ever get on your own because I'm going to restore all things. I'm restoring order to the way it was originally meant to be, but now with grace at the center. Matthew Henry writes, never anyone lost by Jesus, never anyone but was an unspeakable gainer by him. Jesus offers these disciples to become unspeakable gainers as prophet. So not just the promise of restoration, there's also in the cross power. And this is a promise of transformation. But it's not as easy as we would like to think because the, the, the cross is fundamentally a, a confrontational symbol. 
It says no. It, it says no to us. When you, when you suffer, it's because the world is not ordered the way it should be ordered. The problem is that we have had a role in disordering the world. Our need for control has imprinted ourselves writ large on our world. We've pressed it into our mold. And the cross is God and Jesus Christ saying to us, no, not your way, but mine. And so there's this process of transformation that we need to experience at the cross of Jesus Christ. Last uh, Yesterday, my wife and I went um, ride, bike ride, and, you know, we have one of these little dogs, and the dog loves to ride bikes. I, I know you don't believe me, but this dog loves to go on bike rides. She's really sad when we take our bikes out and leave her behind. So we take her on our bike rides oftentimes, um, and she's just so happy. The problem is getting her into the backpack, she does not enjoy that little moment. And uh, so <laughs> we were actually picking up a red box of Bartel, and our dog Olivia tends to draw a crowd. So we had a bunch of people around. She was charming. Then it was time to put her in the backpack, and I thought, this is not going to look good. We're gonna, the, the SPCA is going to haul us off. So I grabbed the dog, and I lift her up really high like this, and all four of her legs and her tail and her head are going in different directions, spinning like this. Why? Because she's trying to get control. Dogs don't like to have their legs off the ground when it's not their choice, right? So she's desperately flailing, and it's the very, her very need for control as I lower her into the backpack that makes that such a difficult and dangerous situation. I'm liable to drop her. If she would just relax into my hands, she could know she's, in, she's safe. I'm going to put her in the bag. In the same way, it's my need for control, the way in which I'm flailing around in, the, in a world that I don't understand and sometimes don't like. God says, I got this. You're in my hands. Can you just relax? This promise of, uh, uh, of the cross is a promise of transformation, of learning how to rely on the power of God in the midst of difficult situations. The Apostle Paul said, this is, this is what my life is all about. 2 Corinthians 4.10. You might write that down. Look at it later. And then 2 Corinthians 1.9. He says, I am always carrying in the body, my body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in my body. He's taking the cross in so that the resurrection comes out. In one night, he says, we felt like we'd received a sentence of death so that we would rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Think of it this way. A kernel of corn. It's a seed, right? You put it in the ground. It's dead, it's dead but out of it grows a plant. And on that plant, you get an ear of corn, many, many ears of corn. Every single one of those kernels has the same exact DNA as the original kernel. And you see, what God wants to do is he wants to put the DNA of Jesus in your life. He wants you to carry about the life of God. And you can't get that kind of resurrection life without facing the cross. Ways in which it says no to you and your efforts to do it yourself. It's the promise of restoration, the promise of transformation. Thirdly, there's the promise of incarnation and presence. Jesus speaks of prophet. He points to a power, and he is a presence. The cross is nothing if it is not a symbol, an expression of radical love that has come to be present to us in the darkest of our deepest, darkest nights. The Son of Man has come to undergo suffering, to suffer greatly, not because he deserved to suffer, not because he had it coming, but because we suffer, and God says, I will do it with you. I will join you in that. 
I will meet you in your greatest pain. Jesus looks at Peter and his disciples, uh, and, he's look, I, uh, and he even calls a crowd. He goes, well, I want everybody to hear this, because I am not trying to lead you around suffering. I am trying to lead you through suffering. And that's the greater thing. So the cross is this great expression of restoration, transformation, and incarnation. God's with us. And we need to talk to ourselves about this in the face of our suffering. We need these kinds of words, good news, to confront our suffering. This is so important for me. This is, I think, what God is teaching me right now. I, I, uh, well, let me put it this way. Not long ago, I was with a friend, and I was complaining about some pain in my life. And I, uh, I was just, oh, this is so hard. And it was nothing like what our side-by-side families go through, but it was, it's pain. And all pain is pain, right? And I was complaining about it. And she looked at me, and she said, George, is this a pattern? And I said, yeah, it is. You know, this, I suffer this way a lot. This is a pattern. She goes, no, I don't mean you're suffering. I mean the self-pity. <laughs> I was like, oh, and... And then I thought for a minute, and I realized, yeah, that is a pattern. Yeah, self-pity is a pattern in my life. And here's what I worry about. What I've learned is that suffering is an experience of loss, and loss will lead to anger, and anger will lead to bitterness. And I worry that I will remap the neural pathways of my life if I continue to indulge self-pity, if I indulge uh, loss without words of good news. I'm fundamentally a joyful person, but just like an Alzheimer patient gets plaque in their brain over time, I worry that th- through not hearing words of good news, I will get plaque in my soul and become a bitter person. So we need to preach the good news to ourselves. 17th century poet John Donne writes a beautiful poem about this. He calls it, Hymn to God, my God, in my sickness. Let me see if you can follow this old English. I'm just reading an excerpt from it. He says, John Donne says, We think paradise and Calvary, Christ's cross and Adam's tree, stood in one place. Lord, look and find both Adams met in me. As the first Adams sweat surrounds my face, may the last Adams blood my soul embrace. Get it? He says, So in his purple wrapped, receive me, Lord, by these His thorns give me his other crown. And as to other souls, I preached thy word. Be this my text, my sermon to mine own. And then he quotes, therefore, that he may raise, the Lord throws down. Let me ask you about you. Just a moment, if I've dared, of reflection. What's been your experience of suffering? And there are only two types of people in this room. There are those who are suffering right now, and there are those who will suffer. What's been your experience of suffering? What do you say to yourself in the face of suffering? Is it advice? Do you hear yourself? Do you hear words of advice as though there were in your head a minimizer, a teacher, a solutions person, or do you hear news? Do you hear voices speaking to yourself of profit and power and presence of Jesus? This is not just about your mood. This is really about your passion. This is about getting into a place where you could live your life with genuine passion. What are you passionate about? What do you have feelings for? What are you willing to suffer for? 
You know, historians tell us that the good news of Jesus spread so radically, quickly in the first few centuries, precisely because it allowed people, believers, to face suffering in a very different way than the culture around them. Not only their suffering, but the suffering of other people. See, the Greeks had taught that the best way to immunize yourself against suffering was to love less, to lower your expectations. An example of this, Epictetus had written, when you kiss your child or your brother or your friend, never give way entirely to your affections. Try not to feel too much. Kind of a state of detachment. That was the Greek approach. They didn't know what to do with their pain. Well, the followers of Jesus know exactly what to do with their pain. They bring their pain to the cross. They bring it to Jesus. And because they do, they don't lower their affections. They enhance them. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ that we encounter God's great love for us. It raises our love for God and therefore raises our love for the world for which Jesus gives his life. We become more bold with our love. We can take risk because we're willing to be hurt. That's why believers ran out and they sold their lives into slavery to free others. They abandoned, they, they gathered together and raised, adopted abandoned children. They educated girls, which the surrounding culture had not done. They would go into places of plague and care in the very basic ways that were needed for people who were sick and dying and they would sometimes die themselves. This is about passion. It's about feelings for Jesus and, and his, and his creation. It's about building capacity to suffer with others. I was writing this sermon in a coffee shop at one point this week, uh, just off the Ave, and a young man came and sat down next to me, 25 years old, told me uh, he was homeless. He had just been arrested the day before for something he said he didn't do. He'd just been kicked out of a bar that evening, uh, suffering. And he looked me in the eye and he said, I'm a loser. And I said... Well, what would you say to a guy like that? What would you say? So I said, have you had dinner? Come and join. Well, I'll get you dinner. And I, and I said, what's your name? And he said, Justin. He said, I'm, my name is Justin Bieber. I thought, whoa. <laughs> That's really a coincidence because there's this musician that... And, and I said to him, you know what? You are not a loser. He said, how do you know? I said, well, I'm, I'm talking to you. I can tell you... Uh, you're an easy guy to talk to. You're an interesting person. You're smart. I could sense your empathy. He goes, no, I'm a loser. I'm homeless. I'm a loser. He goes, no, you're not. He goes, yes, I am. I thought I was going to get into an argument. He'd be kicked out of the coffee shop. I said, no, you're not a loser. He said, there's, Justin, there's a difference between being lost and being a loser. And I could see the gears kind of grinding in his head and sort of something breaking inside of him. What do we say to people who are suffering? What do we say to these families? Maybe it's enough to know what not to say. Kate Bowler has an appendix in her book. And uh, you know, she said the worst thing to say is, is this. How are you really doing? And she said people hate that because imagine taking the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your whole life and compressing it down to one sentence and then responding with a smile. Like it's not a good thing to say to somebody. Then she's another appendix with, with a short list of things that you should say, and I'll just read them to you because so, she says they're, they're good. Can I bring you a meal this week? Uh, you're a beautiful person. I'm on your team. Can I give you a hug? And then she said, most helpful at all is this, silence. Show up and shut up. Silence. 
It's interesting to me. She, people have written her a lot of letters. She's gotten some notoriety just before she dies here. And she says, the letters that really speak to me don't talk about why we die. They talked about who was there in the dying. When you were afraid the end had come, were you alone? And she tells a story about a man who went through an unspeakable crisis, which I won't repeat to you in church. And at the end of it, he tells her in a letter that he just felt that God was there, that he felt this unexplainable peace, and it changed him forever. He ends his letter by saying this to her in her suffering. He says, I have no idea how this works, but I wish this for you as you move forward. Presence. And I think uh, that's maybe what we really have to offer. The best thing might just be to hear the good news ourselves and simply to be present to others when they're suffering. And I think, Becky, I think you say it best in that video. It seems to me that in your advice, you were uh, in your in your heart at first, you're hearing advice, which is this desire to get from being a patient to being a a volunteer. Uh, But when you were listening to good news in your heart, you got to this place where you said, you know what? There aren't really two groups of people. There's just one group. And and I'm a cancer mom. And we're living this life uh, together. And sometimes... It's a super hard life. Thank you for that. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for entering in to the depth of our pain, to sit with us in it, to walk with us through it, that we might, with the great hope of Jesus Christ, know how to do the same with people around us, We pray that you would commission us to do that this week in some way and that your Holy Spirit will be speaking to them the good news of Jesus in ways that our words couldn't possibly convey. And we thank you for the hope that we have that one day all things will be made new. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.